We implemented many ideal processes. The world's most practiced method for project management. Still has been um, a catalyst in my career. Hundreds of thousands of people with a Prince 2 qualification. I've seen ITIL help organizations be more successful. The Axelos Podcast, bringing best practice directly to you. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this next episode of the Axelos Global Best Practice Podcast. I'm your host, Akshay Anand. And we have an absolutely fabulous international panel for you today to talk about a topic which I don't think we talk about enough and a topic which I think is severely misunderstood uh, within our community. And that is the topic of knowledge management. Uh, now, I must confess, I have been, uh, let's say, a victim of knowledge management. I have experienced what I might now considered to be bad knowledge management. But joining me today is a fabulous panel to talk about what good knowledge management is going to look like. And going east to west, uh, the easternmost person here is April Allen, uh, aka Knowledgebird, uh, at Knowledgebird on Twitter. Um, April is an uh, independent uh, coach, consultant, trainer, uh, woman extraordinaire based out in Australia. I always forget which part of Australia, and I keep thinking it's Sydney, but I suspect it's Melbourne or somewhere in between. Past Sydney, current Melbourne. Okay, there we go. Um, and then moving uh, ever so slightly uh, eastwards, uh, I think John Hall, the principal product owner at BMC, uh, is about three, three hours drive in one direction. Uh, John is, uh, sorry, I should have mentioned April and John have, uh, and uh, um, our third guest that I'll come to, have all contributed to ITIL4 in various ways. April uh, wrote parts of the Create, Deliver support book and John contributed to Create, Deliver and support as well as High Velocity IT. Um, he has also taken a, a very special interest in, in the topic of knowledge management, especially as it uh, uh, impacts support teams and he's talked a bit in the past about things like swarming as organizational models to help with knowledge uh, transfer and and so on so it'd be interesting to to get his perspective not only as a as a thought leader but as a a technologist and and understanding how technology plays a role in knowledge management and three hours in the other direction uh, from from my home is Dave Snowden, whom uh, some you may remember from the Creative Professionals episode that we did about with the stand-up comic. Uh, Dave is the founder and chief scientific officer at Cognitive Edge, very well known around the world uh, for his work on Kinevin and complexity uh, thinking. Uh, but prior, or perhaps in parallel to his work in the complexity field, Dave was a, a practitioner and a thought leader in the space of knowledge management. And I'm sure he'll be able to share a lot of stories from his um, from his IBM days when, when he started working quite heavily in the field of knowledge management. Or perhaps it was before. Uh, Dave, I think, is at Snowdead, S-N-O-W-D-E-D, -E on Twitter. John, you are at... John Hall, I think, down on Twitter. Or oh, I probably missed an underscore. John Stevens Hall. Oh, it's John Stevens Hall. Okay, you've, so you changed... I thought you changed it to John Hall. Anyway, apologies. Uh, at John Hall, uh, John Stevens Hall on Twitter. All right, so um, without further ado, let's, let's get into the topic, knowledge management. Um, and perhaps let's start by actually talking about what is knowledge. Because uh, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, depending on what your role is, uh, where you are in the sort of hierarchy of your organization, lots of different perspectives. So let's kick this off. Uh, April, I'll, I'll throw that first question over to you. 
how would you explain the concept of knowledge and, and knowledge management, perhaps even, to to a practitioner, to a, or a layperson? Yep. Um, so I, I describe knowledge as uh, information with context that you can take action on, uh, whether that's making a decision or doing something. Um, and knowledge management, um, you know, I've been talking a lot uh, more recently about intention, like the, um, knowledge management is the intention you, you put into transferring knowledge around the organisation so that the organisation can take action in line with whatever their strategic objectives are. Okay. And Dave, any, any sort of uh, contrasting uh, opinions or maybe things to add to that? Yeah, I mean, I'm familiar with that definition. I mean, that's a sort of Prusak and Davenport type approach if we go back to the 90s. Um, I think the danger with that, you end up with these hierarchies where you go data, information, knowledge, wisdom, and I've actually seen people go to 10 levels on that one. Um, and the danger is the hierarchy gets you into the wrong concept. So you end up with what would be good information management projects being relabeled as KM projects because it's seen as having more status. The way I define it and defined it in the CBI handbook on the subject, this is going back to the turn of the century, was knowledge is the way that you create information from data. So if I'm an accountant, I have the knowledge of an accountant. So a balance sheet means something to me. If you don't have that knowledge, then the balance sheet is just data, it's meaningless. Right. So for me, and this is linked with work I did with JC Spender, knowledge is about meaning making. Um, so seeing it, so knowledge management is about creating sufficient shared context that information can flow is, is, is the way I would define it. So then, then we come to a, an interesting, um, perhaps a spectrum or two categories. Uh, is knowledge always tacit or can it be explicit? Uh, <laughs> we're laughing, uh, you know, so this is an audio podcast, so people are wondering why we're starting to laugh. And that's because Dave just made the sign of the cross when I when I asked that question. It's probably a, a question he doesn't enjoy, but uh, I... I mean, I, I've come across Nanaka. I mean, I love Nanaka. I've met him. He's a sweet old man. Um, but he started knowledge management and he started Scrum and both of them started from the wrong space. So twice in my career, I've hit this one. So he created this truly appalling two by two matrix called the Seki framework. Ironically, he wrote a book about how Japanese people do not do categories and Western people do, and then produced a categorization framework in which you have, he makes tacit and explicit knowledge effectively two types of knowledge. So you have tacit to tacit, tacit to explicit, explicit to explicit and explicit to tacit, right? In fact, Kinevin got named in counter to this framework. That's the origins of Kinevin. Um, and the problem with that is that actually it's not like that. I mean, it, and he, he quotes Polanyi, but he didn't read Polanyi. Polanyi says, no explicit knowledge can exist without a tacit component. Uh, you can't have explicit knowledge independently of tacit. And if you look at the work Brasso and I did, and Brasso's Knowledge Assets is still the best book on knowledge management I know. And what we focused on is kind of like three typologies, not taxonomy, and that's an important distinction. So you have like the knowledge of a London taxi driver, um, which is deeply intuitive, non-abstract, non non-codified, 
takes years to gain, in fact, two and a half years minimum, yeah, but it's highly adaptive. You then have highly explicit knowledge, which is like the map, all right? And the map does as well as the taxi driver if you've got time and if the context isn't shifting. And then between that, you have narrative knowledge, storytelling. And, and actually, stories are still the primary method of knowledge communication. And I've discovered that work with engineers. Engineers tell stories which have more value than the documents they produce. So you can, we can then adapt the statement Polanyi who said we always know more than we can tell to say we always know more than we can tell and we will always tell more than we can write down. So the process of staking stuff from my head to my mouth to my hands involves loss of context and loss of value. So we, we tend to talk about highly explicit, intuitive knowledge, highly codified knowledge and narrative knowledge. And that's a fluid spectrum in which things move around between them. Um, the minute you start to talk about making tacit knowledge explicit, you're on a down, downward spiral um, to nowhere because there's very little knowledge, very little knowledge can effectively be made explicit. Yeah, unless they have a very high level of shared context between the people who are sharing it. We'll come to that later on because I do want to pick up on that thread. It, it is an interesting one to pull on. Uh, John, I, I, I'd imagine in, in your work, you do talk a lot of to a lot of your uh, prospects and clients about their sort of uh, roadmaps of uh, how they're rolling out uh, the tools that you produce. What are some of the common uh, things that they talk about when they talk about investing in knowledge management? Why are they investing in knowledge management? How are they going about thinking about it? Uh, what are the benefits they see? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think one thing that organizations are, are dealing with right now is a, is a much increasing breadth of their technology base. I mean, we, you know, we, we see obviously this big growth of DevOps and Agile and a lot of frontline services now have a component that's built that way on very modern cloud infrastructure. Um, but, you know, I'm going to revert to my favorite example is, is you know, when, when you click a button to change your airline seat, you're clicking one button and it feels simple. But you're probably hitting 50, 100 underlying systems. You're you're dealing with the brand new interface on your brand new mobile app. You're right through to ancient mainframes somewhere in the travel industry that somehow stops somebody booking that seat in Melbourne, you know, two minutes later. So so that's one issue that organizations have. They're trying to kind of adapt their support processes so they have some way of of containing this this spread and enabling support teams to you know, to continue to provide a kind of industrialized kind of support that that hopefully removes day-to-day -day toil from specialists. Uh, I think there's also just a, a, a genuine sense that a lot of work is done multiple times. You know, because, because there's a lack of communication um, <laughs> inherent in some of the kind of the, the prevalent work structures in ITSM, you know, and, and particularly I think if you think about tiered support and the way work is kind of thrown over fences rather than shared, there's, there's at least in what I think, you know, we, maybe Kenevin would call that up to the, the complicated domain, we, we can at least capture some information to prevent people having to solve the same problem multiple times. That, that, that I think, is objectives. I mean, getting to that point where you're successfully delivering, you know, better help to your people about the new technologies emerging and preventing that rework and, and you know, d delivering genuine, you know, um, genuine value in the long term is challenging. That, that's why things like KCS are interesting. And so organizations are also kind of coalescing around more structured ways of doing knowledge in a in a more, in a less centralized and more embedded way like KCS. I think those are the kind of conversations we tend to have right now. Interesting. So I'll, I'll, I'll poke the bear a little bit perhaps, April, with uh, asking the, this next question. 
what are the risks of investing in knowledge management? Are there risks in investing in knowledge management? Yeah, um, there's risks in investing in um, the, the wrong things. Um, you know, it's not it's not effective knowledge management if it's um, not serving a strategic objective. Um, it's just capturing and and storing and taking up space and taking effort to capture and store. Um, you know, and you know, I see people as well. You know, they talk about a lessons learned and they do retros and they capture the outcomes of those retros, but what then? Like, so that's just wasted effort if there's not a part of the system then that is about going back to that and, and okay, before we kick something new off, let's go back and see what did we learn, what was the good things and what was the bad things so that we can avoid doing the bad things again. So, so the risks are not thinking it all the way through from the beginning to the end when we start thinking about a knowledge management effort. Um, and um, just directing that effort in the wrong to the, in the wrong place, like an unnecessary place. So that that's where I see risks. So so I'll I'll chip in with some of, uh, as I said, I've been a, a victim or I've experienced bad knowledge management. And one of the one of the big risks that I've always seen in knowledge management projects, uh, and again, my projects have been about sort of tool implementation type projects rather than. Uh, something more anthropological or, or philosophical in, in nature. But I've always seen the sort of um, life cycle of knowledge as being, and I use the term loosely, but that's always been the, 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 the hard bit. It's, it's easy to set up the tools, the structure, the scaffolding, relatively easy to set all of that up for an organization, for a team to be able to use. But then the organization seems to lose the will to live the moment they start using it. And, you know, it's kind of like as much as I bemoan CMDBs as being the, uh, and configuration management projects as being the the place where hope goes to die, I sort of think of knowledge management projects as being a close second because nobody knows how to use it. They don't seem to derive the value out of it. And it just seems to be a good idea when we started, the organization started thinking about it, but it doesn't seem to deliver on the promise. Uh, Dave, have you seen that sort of a, a cycle? Yeah, and I think I mean the part of the problem is I mean I've I've keynoted at KM World, which is the only remaining large knowledge management conference left in the world for 21 years now. I mean, every year I turn up. One year I didn't, and they I didn't know I was speaking virtually through a pumpkin, and that taught me a lesson, right? Because it was Halloween. Um, we're fourth time round on knowledge management at the moment, and people are making exactly the same mistakes. I mean, the agile community is suddenly seized on things, and they're doing all the same things people did back in '94 when it started, and none of them worked. And so, knowledge management programs faded because. Sorry, can you can you give some examples of some of those uh, common pitfalls that you're referring to? Oh well, one is creating communities of practice around the subject. Um, because actually the trouble is that there are different levels of abstract knowledge. So we had a community of practice in IBM around knowledge, right? It had myself and Larry Prusak in it. Uh, Larry never bothered. I went in once and then phoned up Larry and said, yeah, you're completely right. It was working at too low a level of abstraction. I go in to teach, but I couldn't gain any knowledge for that, right? And it ended up with effectively the second raters who enjoy codifying things starting to own the knowledge management system. And anybody who really understood it just ignored it, right? We did a huge ethnography study in the big five consultancies. 
And we found people only use the knowledge management system to find the name of somebody they could phone up and have a conversation with because that human validation was more important. So if you look at what we focused on, we focused on something which is called narrative enhanced doctrine, which is what we did with the US Army. So you have a minimal level of information management in doctrine, but then you add people's experience onto that. So you only ever see information in the context of real world experience. And we also focus, and actually this is the big thing we're working on at the moment, post COVID, is building informal networks because informal networks are the primary mechanism for knowledge flow. And if you want the main reason why knowledge management has failed four times and will fail again, apart from the nonsense of creating standards for it, I still find that one hysterical as another standards body come out, um, is that people try and formalize what is not always a formal process. So trust is key on knowledge exchange and you don't trust people because you're told to by the company. You trust them because of experience over time. So this idea people, people hold on to knowledge because knowledge is power, that indicates people, nobody's read Bacon if they, they quote that, right? Yeah, Bacon is talking about the need for education, but actually fear of abuse is a more significant factor in knowledge retention um, than an attempt to use it to control for power. But if, doesn't it take time then for organizations to invest in building out those networks, creating that trust. I'm not necessarily saying that the, the tooling and the uh, and all the bad things we see, we've seen, um, you know, they, they, they happen for a reason. And that reason, I think, is because people are trying to create a boundary of scope. They're taking an engineering approach, not an ecological approach. The reality is informal networks work within organizations already. The trouble is they're not stimulated, so they form across silos. We get everybody within three degrees of separation of everybody else within six months if we run the right sort of process. And that's a lot less time than you spend building a knowledge management system. And I felt that the last thing you should do is build a knowledge management system. You should build technology which supports naturally occurring processes. Interesting. Okay. So, April, I know you've been talking about knowledge management for uh, in, in, uh, and consulting. Um, I think when we first spoke, you said uh, several years. Uh, I forget exactly how many years you said, but it was it was a lot enough that I, I trust you as a as a thought leader in this space. Um, do you does what Dave was just describing about the sort of informal networks of knowledge and rather than trying to make things explicitly, etc. Have you seen that or been able to promote that in your work, uh, or do you take a different approach? Well, I mean, that's what we see happening um, in swarming. Like the the genesis of swarming is understanding those um, those naturally occurring dynamics. And when 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 you rely on management to choose the those champions, um, they'll they'll get a few of them right, but not all of them. Um, you need to blend um, that the management overview of um, you know those champions with the you know the 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 peers like what are the what are the what are the team who do the team turn to in you know with life questions and there'll be people in their in their workplace that they turn to routinely so they they sort of become hubs um and you know that's what that's what swarming is built on is is um understanding those networks and enabling them in platforms like slack or some other chat uh, real-time conversation enabling platform 
So, yeah, I mean, it, that is, I mean, Slack wouldn't have succeeded in any other format. And by succeeded, I'm just saying it's, it's become an enterprise, a well-known enterprise tool. So, you know, it depends on your definition of succeeding. But, um, yeah, that's an informal network. It's interesting. My, my wife uh, just started a new job and uh, her new company uses Slack quite heavily. And uh, she, her big complaint is just being overwhelmed by the number of Slack channels and the number of notifications and messages that are flowing across Slack. It's it's almost like uh, trying to drink Being from a fire hose. like Groove, all right? So Groove came out to replace Lotus Notes. I mean, it, my trouble is I've been doing this stuff since 93. So you see the same sort of cycles come around. And Groove was brilliant for when a team formed, and Slack is brilliant when a team forms, but it doesn't provide for long-term function. It's a short-term one. The other thing is I think you need to realize there's an overfocus on text. Um, we actually find voice and pictures are often more effective yeah, in conveying complex knowledge. In fact, we use cartoons. This is the field of semiotics. can convey quite complex ideas or get people to think differently. And the way narrative databases work is they work off abstraction. So the, the pro it's the whole problem with internet searches. Everything is about word counts. And you can write down maybe 5 or 10% of what you know. So the minute you move into text-based knowledge management, you're dispensing with 80 to 90% of what you need to have access to. So abstract metadata structures become key because you need to find things serendipitously, not by design. And that's actually how humans develop knowledge. So you can do this. The trouble is that the lessons don't get learned and we just cycle round and round again, right? And it's, again, I think it leads back to this basic problem we got in management science generally, is that what systems thinking did to management science in the 90s is focus it on engineering. And the metaphors were engineering. It came from cybernetics and systems dynamics. The reality is the metaphors need to be ecological. So informal networks work like the roots of fungus, which connect tree roots. The trees are the formal system, the fungal roots are the informal system. You, you need to rebalance the system. Yeah. So that, and, and there's a golden rule I created years ago for KM. It says if people have to put any extra time into the KM system, they won't do it. And if you can't save them time by the participation in the KM system, they won't do it. So when we deployed with the US Army, you know, it's a big project. We company commanders kept notes in the field, you know, using high abstraction metadata in return for not writing a patrol report. So we saved them time. And we did the same with Salesforce knowledge management. You have to give people tools they find useful, which indirectly allow for the discovery of knowledge, right? And that way you're creating something as part of a complex ecosystem rather than trying to create another bloody machine. And that's a great segue to the my next question for John because, you know, again when I when I've implemented Remedy back in the day or ServiceNow etc. Knowledge seemed to be very much centered around that singular or maybe in some cases a federated knowledge management database, a KMDB with lots of knowledge entries and so on. Is and again it's been years since I've sort of touched a, a tool or uh, helped implement a tool. But has the world moved on from that or or is that sort of uh, lens still in, in play? Just made me think um, season two of The Wire when Frank Sabotka yells at his son, this isn't back in the day. Yeah. Um, you, you These days, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. What you've touched on, especially the, the, you know, the extra effort point is really key. And, and it's easy just to think of that for knowledge creation. But actually, if you put a hurdle in the way of someone consuming knowledge, 
Yeah. You're actually, you, know, you need to put yourself in the seat of a service desk agent. Okay. They, they have, they are balancing two different objectives, primary objectives. People are watching their first time fix rate and knowledge can be really helpful for that, particularly in that kind of, you know, that, that simple or, you know, complicated issue where it is just a question of finding a known solution quickly. They want that. They want to make that fix. But on the other hand, there's a big red number on the wall saying you've got five people waiting in the queue and people are watching the time they take. And I had a service, a service agent tell me it's a gamble. And what the gamble was, was they had an external knowledge system and he had to, he had to move from the current tab, move to another tab, do a knowledge search. So one of the things we focused on in the current day is making sure that, you know, what, what knowledge we have is contextually delivered to where people are already doing their work. You know, if you're logging a service desk call, you, you've only got to, by the time you finish typing your first sentence in our interface, it's identified the customer and also started to pull in knowledge, which updates as you continue to capture the customer's context. That's critical because then, you know, it's there and, and that's really, really important. The, but then, of course, the bigger challenge is that creation process, um, which I think is less of a solved problem, but probably the best thing that we have to address that is, is the kind of KCS approach where instead of focusing on some centralized team, which is meant to kind of curate a knowledge library somehow from this myriad of technical networks, it's more about gathering what happens in the context of interactions. So, so I think where we are focusing in, in the modern world now is you know, we, we're putting a lot of work into swarming. We're putting a lot of work into chat integration. And in our case, we're doing a lot of investment in, in teams. I mean, Microsoft Teams, I think, was already growing rapidly and you know, has become a problem for Slack in the enterprise. And then coronavirus happened and suddenly everybody was at home. Everybody was working on these tools. Now, the world didn't end for companies like they thought it would, I think, when they moved people out of the office. But I think it's even more critical that we, you know, we, we account for the fact that people are working in these informal, unstructured networks. But we can also take this great opportunity you know, to, to, to put the technology where they're working now. You know, it was never easy to put technology into a small conference room in a meeting or around a coffee machine. You know, regrettably, a lot of the coffee machine culture is just, you know, is, is gone for the foreseeable future. But we do have this opportunity now as, as I don't think offices are ever going quite back to where they were to kind of put useful technology where people are working to focus on also the gathering what knowledge we can, ensuring that it kind of lives as an artifact rather than being some document that somebody produces and throws into a long tail database and forgets about. I think, I mean, I, I agree with that. And I think, although I think Zoom will displace Teams because Zoom has made its standards open. So other people are developing capability around Zoom. Microsoft are making the classic error they always make. And we gave up trying to develop narrative interfaces to Microsoft Teams because they're too proprietary. Whereas we can just do that with Zoom. Right, so you're going to see that ecosystem thing, but I think I mean there's a thing I created a long time which is called about artifact skills, experience, um, heuristics, natural talent, action. So it's it's a way of looking at knowledge, and the trouble is we keep talking about the artifacts, all right, and we're forgetting key things. So for example, experience matters. I did a lot of work with service desk management, field ethnography with Thames Water. And we actually found, I mean, when you do this, you ask to sit with the, the best person and the worst person. And you nearly always find out the worst person is actually the best person because they think differently. <laughs> and the worst person there actually was married to a water engineer. So she knew about things. She saved them a bloody fortune, but she never followed the process because she had that sort of tacit understanding of how people made decisions. 
uh, heuristics are one of the most powerful ways to hold knowledge, but people don't do that. So heuristics hold at they hold ambiguity. Yeah, it's it's the famous one is the Marines one, which Gary Klein and I worked on, which is if in doubt, capture the high ground, stay in touch, keep moving. Yeah, so that that's a form of of embedded knowledge. So we really so most of what we talked about has been information management, not knowledge management. Yeah. Mm. Um, and actually, that experience, natural talent, heuristics, yeah, um, all of those are a key element on it. And there's whole bodies of knowledge which you can't learn from a book. You need a two or three year apprentice model. All right. And again, that's not built into the system. This this drive to codification is really dangerous. I, think, I, I just want to. Sorry, go ahead, John. And, and I, yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. You know, with the. With, with the kind of the, the core of the point you're making there, I th and that's why I think it's dangerous to kind of regard knowledge management as an isolated practice in itself. You know, yeah, we, we, it's, it's not a coincidence that the Consortium for Service Innovation has, you know, has, has really landed two really great concepts in parallel with, with KCS for knowledge management, but with intelligence swarming for bringing groups together dynamically with, with, with good people to, to address the thing. I mean, and, and you know, just briefly, you know, my, one of my favorite quotes on swarming came from probably one of our very most um, experienced frontline engineers on a remedy product back in the day, um, who said that when they moved to a swarming model and he was being paired with inexperienced people, you know, so they would put him as the sort of classic level two and then maybe a sort of a fresh level one support person, he doubled his knowledge in six months. Because maybe that sort of echoes what you were talking about, you know, with the, the perceived the worst person, just just bringing people together on a day to day basis, disseminated that knowledge extremely powerfully between them. I guess what we need to what we try to find, though, is that way of at least capturing what we can from that process and broadening it and sharing it further. We do prohibited swarming. So what we do is we we identify roles within the organization, then we entangle those roles in multiple trios and get them on micro project focused. And that's also the way we build the informal networks. So it's kind of like it's not centralized swarming, it's distributed swarming with multiple roles and functions. Yeah, and that, that's a method called entangled trios. So I think we're all getting more sophisticated at this, right? And I think we need to see technology as an, as an enabler of interaction. Larry Prusak famously said, the most important thing he ever said on knowledge management, if you've got a dollar to invest, yeah, put 99 cents into connecting people. Yeah, and, and and that's still true today. So we're, we're going to take a short break. But before I do that, there is one more question uh, that I, I want to throw to April. Uh, and John uh, referenced this, um, you know, as people are have been under lockdown, they've been working from home, etc. Uh, my impression, April, at least, is that um, communication has now become very scheduled. You know, you there, there is no... You know, cough, uh, you know, water cooler chat and uh, type thing anymore. We can't seem to, at least in my experience, we've not found a, a technical medium or means to be able to replace that sort of spontaneous, um, unscheduled interaction, uh, which uh, also uh, touches upon this sort of informal networking. Is this something that you've seen organizations struggle with once they started, uh, once they were forced to go remote? Have you seen? Any interesting um, tools or solutions that they may have come up with? Yes, I'm seeing this um, being a problem, but it was a problem before. Um, um, some teams within 
an organisation are good at using teams and they're good at doing that um, spontaneous um, knowledge transfer, just having conversation in the channel um, and others aren't. Um, I I still think you need facilitation and one of our best tools as knowledge management consultants is um, enabling the conversation and um, I've had to do it online um, with Zoom, well, uh, with Teams and um, online whiteboarding. Um, and today I was finally back in a boardroom with a whiteboard with people face to face and facilitating a, a half a day workshop. And, and it was really just having cross functional people in the room, like people from every team in the room, um, um, the old post it and the sharpies and you know what are your biggest headaches and what let's let's map out a few of these things and basically re-engineer our back office platform because that's what we're talking about and and um you know uh, i i get a round of applause at the end of the day but it's 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 their it's their knowledge they know things but it's being able to talk about them in front of all the other people where they get those multiple perspectives and then they're able to get an end-to-end understanding of what we were there to talk about. So, so so are we saying that really there is no substitute for that face-to-face communication and dialogue? There is no technical solution that can replace that in this time of sort of lockdowns? and it, There isn't a priori, Ashok. I mean, we know on the science of this. Um, so chemicals and scent are an important part of human communication and trust determination. So you can sustain a Zoom conversation for about 40 minutes. You can constrain a workshop for a whole day because you get richer communication. So there isn't a substitute. And the danger is, and this is the epigenetics, within, if we went all virtual within two generations, we would lose human capacity to actually make trust decisions very quickly. It's not that these things can be reactivated. So uh, hybrid solutions, I think, in the future. I mean, I, I was down in our office in Bristol the other day, right? And, you know, we, we, we worked for eight hours and we got a hell of a lot done. And we couldn't have done that in 15 Zoom conversations. Yeah. So I, I think you need to look at context here. The, 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 I've seen Teams and Zoom work for people doing very functional roles where information is their primary means of communication. It breaks down completely when you're into things like strategy, repurpose, and redirection. But you just don't get all the signals you expect as an actor in those systems. Interesting. All right, let's let's pause there and take a break. And when we'll come back, we'll talk about something that I've been asked to talk about by a few of, in our audience, and that is KCS. Hi, everyone. It's Harry here, the producer of the Axonos podcast. And I'd like to introduce today's shout-out, which is Shuresh GP. Shuresh is the Managing Director of Taub Solutions, and he's a very active member of the ITSM community in both India and Southeast Asia. He also serves as a regional leader for the BRM Institute and as an ambassador for the DevOps Institute. But that's enough from me. Let's hear from Suresh in his own words. My name is Suresh GP. I'm the Managing Director of Top Solutions. Uh, I've been in this uh, industry for the last uh, 20 plus years. Uh, one of the things that uh, has taken me is I'm, I did masters in chemical engineering. Uh, landed in IT by accident, so it's over about uh, 20 years now. Um, my primary focus uh, as a managing director of Top Solutions, we have three entities, India, Singapore, and the US, is primarily focusing on IT management best practices in the form of consulting, training, and uh, business simulations. And um, 
service management has been my bread and butter since 2005. So that's been a long time now. And I think one of the things that everybody tries to uh, get a, a break in their career was um, really how do you move away from being in an organization of growth to bring in an opportunity of getting connected in a global platform. There was always a bit of a challenge because growing up in India, coming up from a remote village and trying to um, understand, get hold of English as a language, as a foreign language, uh, getting your academics focused. I always felt that until the first 10 years, you don't understand what you're good at it. It's a kind of an experimentation. You are given some things by uh, design not by choice. So uh, you pick up whatever is provided to you and then you you take it up from there. So until about four or five years, my first five years was in software development and um, um, around uh, element of uh, Java, J2E. But I was not very sure that I was probably destined to be a software engineer just because I got a campus selection and, and thought, okay, everybody's into IT, let's move on to IT, coming from a chemical engineering background. But then I think uh, the, the breakthrough happened when I joined HP in 2005. You know, that's the first time I heard the word called ITIL. And I didn't know because that was a mandatory uh, qualification to even join HP at that time. And that fascinated me. What is this ITIL and, and stuff like that? And ever since that, I have had a, a lot of interest and passion towards IT service management and how that has changed. Um, and one of the biggest accomplishment was to do the ITIL V2 masters, the service support and service delivery and get this one because it was historically proven that only 50% of the people would succeed at the first attempt. And I was able to get through and with flying colors. And that made me feel that, you know, you've, you've probably achieved something of uh, 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 a, a stature that you would probably want to explore. So it gave me a lot more interest and involvement to start to do that. And the last um, six years was obviously the big gig was to start ourselves on our own, right? You always have a feeling that, okay, let's, let's move on to one organization and other organizations. I was really interested to do consulting training, but there's nothing big than having some gig for yourself. So uh, looking back on 2014, when we started off top solutions as a company, myself and my wife, that I think was a feat by itself. People said that I don't know how long you will survive in this industry. <laughs> in all six years, it's been a it's been a roller coaster. Right? So I, I I'm I'm glad that we took the challenge of plunging into a um, being on our own, and uh, it has made us so much of a difference. The first thing about um, advice to a former self would be more importantly um, trying to have the open mindset. I think one of the things we get uh, we we generally tend to have this uh, herd mentality. Oh, everybody's doing that. Let's do it. But I think what is important for us is to start challenging the status quo and uh, being inquisitively curious. I think one of the things that helped to be uh, to move on forward is to uh, challenge the status quo, do things much differently and look at the big picture. I think if you do it in the formative years of uh, bringing that uh, openness, uh, inquisitiveness and curiosity to do it, it becomes much, much more beneficial. And I cannot overemphasize on the aspect of coaching and mentoring. When I was part of HP, one of the things that grew, that made me grow, because we have a service management profession itself, and Stuart Rans was heading this uh, thing. One of the things we, we grew was as mentors, we also understood from a lot from mentees. 
So I think the coaching and mentoring is a very important aspect, which um, one has to imbibe or get into it early part of his career. I mean, whatever career it would be, because you never know every answer, but you can actually ask for help and that will actually change the whole gears. So I think being inquisitively uh, curious, looking at um, challenging status quo and asking for help and coaching would be really good. From a manager's perspective, I think um, the millennials are much more smarter than what we were. So it's no longer required us to teach them what it needs to be done. But uh, they require a lot of uh, guidance and um, direction. So I think the role of manager is going to be increasingly different in this uh, digital age, focusing on giving a psychological safety environment. I think most of the organizations struggle to give a psychological safety environment where people are candid enough to tell diametrically opposite views. And people are still open enough to kind of accept what they are in a, you know, with a, with a pure merit basis. I think as a manager, uh, you know, the biggest thing is about pushing the people to uh, go beyond the boundaries and also giving them a platform to experiment. I think if these two things, if a manager does, you never know how much uh, leaders you can create. And I always believe, like Aaron Barnes says, that a good manager or a leader should create more leaders. So it is important to provide a legacy of getting everybody think that they can be a leader and provide them the confidence and support in the way they can grow up in their both uh, personal and professional life. The best way is on LinkedIn, um, very active on LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, we have had a lot of conversations on Twitter where people are exchanging ideas. Uh, they can uh, reach out to me uh, on our website, uh, topsolutions.com. Um, and uh, we've been open enough to uh, reach out to uh, people. We have some groups that we get and to coach and mentor people as they come in in their profession. And I see off late, there's a lot of people sending invites on LinkedIn. That's a great place because um, nobody knows everything, but uh, whatever we have experience, if you can share and learn, we can do it. So you can find me on Twitter on as Suresh GP or on LinkedIn as Suresh GP. Uh, more than happy to connect and share insights uh, moving forward. Hey, so this is Akshay again. I hope you uh, enjoyed that. And now let's get back to your regularly scheduled podcast. All right, and we're back. So we're continuing the conversation about knowledge management. And I've been asked by a few uh, listeners to specifically talk about KCS. What is it? Why should I pay attention to it? Uh, is there, uh, you know, are there other uh, frameworks or methodologies out there? Um, am I already using KCS? A whole host of questions. So um, April, I'll start with you again, uh, first again. Uh, what is KCS and why should organizations pay attention to it? Uh, so it's a best practice methodology that emerged out of the support industry. It's been in um, uh, research and development, active use in the support industry for 25 odd years. Uh, and it's a way of working um, at problem solving with um, knowledge as the, uh, as the key component of us being able to deliver value um, as you know, people working in service. Um, I suppose I should also ask for a clarification because I've seen people refer to knowledge-centered services and knowledge-centered support, both with the acronym KCS. So what is KCS uh, full form? It used to be knowledge-centered support um, version 5.3, but then they updated some language um, throughout the methodology. And, and because the consortium found that KCS was being um, successfully 
um, put to use in other departments besides support, things like HR facilities and whatnot. Um, they expanded the the um, they expanded the methodology into service, so a knowledge centred service, and we're up to version six. Okay, and is it like other best practice frameworks out there, such as you know, well, ITIL, um, uh, COBIT, um, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, where there's a sort of a, a formal uh, learning path, certification path on your way to becoming more and more of an expert in KCS, or is it, you know, a half day online video type? Um, there is a certification path, but it's an open source methodology. So you can absolutely dive into it um, and understand the practices and um, start uh, evolving the way you work with your team and do uh, do KCS um, the best you can in your environment. Um, but yes, there is a certification path. There is a fundamentals, which is um, covers the capture, structure, reuse, improve the daily sort of problem-solving workflow. Um, and then there's the, you know, the full two or three-day workshop, which goes into, uh, covers that solving um, loop, but it also talks about how we continuously improve knowledge and, you know, the communication, the leadership, the measurement and all of that. So um, you can become... Um, a KCS coach, there's an opportunity to certify as a KCS coach. I'm a certified trainer, so you can do the trainer pathway and become a, a trainer either internally or externally to your organisation. Uh, you can also do knowledge domain analysis, which is about that um, you know continuous improvement of, of knowledge within a domain of expertise. Um, so, yeah, there, there is a structured formality if you want to go down that path. But like I said, it's open source, so you don't have to. Fair enough. And, and John, I know you, you've referenced KCS uh, quite a few times in the conversation already, talking about, uh, for example, swarming, um, which we, we've written about, uh, you've written about on, on Medium and uh, in other places as well. What are the other sort of, uh, dare I say, practical techniques that KCS uh, encourages that some of our listeners may, may perhaps may already be doing? Yeah, I mean, as I say, it's it it it's a bit of a shift. It shifts away from a, a kind of traditional centralized knowledge team philosophy, and the aim is to really put interaction with knowledge into the everyday. And when I define interaction, what I mean is both consumption of knowledge and contribution of knowledge. So we, first of all, we see people encouraged to you know, always be searching, always be identifying as they're dealing with an issue whether somebody else has experienced that issue in the same context and we when context is an important word there because casey has advocates for capturing these things in the context of the experience of the person having that issue rather than writing everything down as a technical blueprint um so you know that 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 puts more onus on people to participate in in knowledge processes it also encourages them if they if they feel they're doing something novel, in other words, something that isn't already linked to someone else's captured you know, captured knowledge, um, to to write it down, you know, even even just in a in a simple way. Uh, and in, in doing so, you know, we the, the idea is to, you know, we we build up in what's called the the solve loop, which is half of the kind of the the, the process steps in KCS. We, we we the aim is to kind of then build up this this block of this body of knowledge 
which which can be you know which is capturing things in the organization and preventing people from reworking things that have already been found out the other half of it is called the evolve loop and that's the that's the more sort of continual improvement side of things so that's where we we focus on which which pieces of captured knowledge are actually proving themselves to be most useful you know we encourage this creation of this long tail you might have a bunch of stuff that's hardly touched but we also have things that are genuinely valuable in the organization and we can focus specific improvement efforts on those. And then through it all, there's also a kind of a staff culture uh, angle as well, you know, so uh, which I'm sure I mean, April is probably able to talk about in much more depth than me as the sort of really experienced consultant in this area. Dave, I think when, when we recorded the, um, the discussion about with, with the stand-up comics interview, you, you, Maybe it was after we recorded and we were just sort of generally chatting as we ended the call. I think you were talking about some of the work that you've been doing with the Cognitive Edge uh, Center. Is it now Cognitive Edge Center? Um, uh, the sort of research work that you've been doing with KCS and the uptick in interest that you've been seeing. I may have misunderstood that offhand remark, but I, I thought I'd like to ask you to expand on that. Um. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a deep expert in KCS. I have a general view of all these frameworks that you, you should have one of them and you should choose one appropriate to the context because it deals with a whole body of stuff you could do. But I generally categorize them as 42 solutions, which is a reference to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and the description of Earth, Yeah, in that they're mostly harmless, right? So you need one, all right? I think the dangers of them are the focus on codification of knowledge and the concept of a body of knowledge and the concept of best practice. And I think there's this general tendency to try for context-free rather than context-specific solutions. So something which evolves in the service sector really belongs in that sector. And I can see how HR would adopt it. It's like you see HR and marketing adopting Agile, but you don't see anybody in their right mind in strategy doing so because you don't do strategy in short cycle sprints or Kanban boards, forget it, right? So I think it's, this is a both and solution. So we're interested, as I say, in, in narrative-based augmentation of these systems. So like I said, with the US Army, you can store a lot less information if you actually have original narratives tagged into that so people can get rich context. The informal network management stuff, our, our approach to swarming, this is in the EU field guide on crisis management, which is just going out in rollout, is about creating human sensor networks in which people swarm without actually knowing explicitly what they're swarming about. Because the danger with swarming is you ask direct questions so people understand what, what the subject is and they understand what they're looking for. So you don't get this serendipitous encounter and you get heavyweight gaming. So we found that in IBM. We went for massive swarming in knowledge management and the astute political players learned to game it pretty damn fast. So one of the, and this is when I was working in counterintelligence. So high abstraction metadata means people can't game the results. So I say, I think it's a both hand and move on. Um, but I also think we, get, we, we should really be very careful how we use the term best practice. And one of these Kinevin does is it makes a difference between best practice and good practice. And you can see this in the medical profession is experienced doctors have different approaches to problems. You shouldn't restrict them to one because you need that sort of variety. But the barrier is that. And you've got emergent practice, you've got accepted practice, right? And 
you know, we're, we're currently working on a way in which you effectively get a cluster of narrative which describe your problem. And then we do a hermeneutic analysis of that and then a hermeneutic search of the web to find serendipitous ideas. So you don't go into a keyword, key concept taxonomy, right? Um, so again, I think you, you need a technique like this. You certainly don't need SharePoint. Sorry about this if anyone's in Microsoft. <laughs> but I famously once said that SAFE is to Agile what SharePoint is to knowledge and Six Sigma is to innovation, all right? Which was a deliberately enigmatic comment and I stand by it to this day. Um, you need a multi-tool, multi-method environment. That's absolutely key. I mean, one of the things we're building at the moment is a facilitation framework, which allows methods and tools from multiple vendors to be brought together in a neutral way, because we think that's critical over the next five to 10 years. You can't afford to be in a single system from a single vendor or a single approach or a single standards body, because that reduces requisite variety in the system. So... Okay, so we've talked a lot about the some of the some of the different approaches, techniques, even different ways of thinking about knowledge management. Um, as we as we head into the the, the last few, uh, few minutes of the, this podcast, I suppose one question is going to be: How do you judge the quality of the knowledge of your knowledge management activities? How do you judge whether you're successful at knowledge management. I'm not trying to make this an ROI question. I'm not trying to put numbers against this, but there has to be at least a subjective way of saying, yes, we're, we're getting, we're better than what we used to be when it comes to understanding uh, what we're doing, uh, learning from what we're doing, improving the quality of the work that we're doing, etc. So how would you judge the quality of your knowledge and, and the gains you're making in knowledge management? Uh, and uh, April, I come to you again as as, as the consultant who works in this space. How how do you? I mean, again, uh, uh, going back to the, the the you know your 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 father's time sort of quote that that John made back in the day when we started a consulting project, I would ask for certain baseline metrics by which the company decided to evaluate whether its uh, activities were successful or not, and then you'd repeat that. Uh, sort of baseline um, exercise after the project and see what sort of changes have, have come about and use that to plan further moves. Um, so how would you recommend to your clients or prospects about uh, you know, measuring knowledge management? Um, so we, we know that um, knowledge um, is right through reuse. So that's how we judge whether knowledge is good or bad is through validating it through reuse. So that's how we get that understanding. On a broader system level, um, our, our lagging sort of indicators, the outcomes we're looking for is that our customer satisfaction goes up. They're happier because they're getting answers more quickly. They can self-serve answers. Um, they're consistent, reliable and trustworthy. Um, our employees uh, are more engaged. Their um, uh, new hires are productive and confident more quickly because they've got that just-in-time training available in that KCS knowledge base. And because that repetitive work is being um, uh, made available to customers through self-service, their work should become more interesting because they're working on more newer stuff rather than repeating themselves all the time. So that's, that's employee engagement that we should see improve. 
And on as a whole, sort of how is the company going metric, we'd be looking at the cost of operations as a percentage of, of as a ratio against revenue. So when we have self-service, when we've got customers that are talking to customers and sharing knowledge, the value we're delivering as a support organization is so much higher. And uh, when when we can calculate that, we're going to see that in, improve over time through good through that application of good knowledge management. That's interesting because as you were describing that, I was thinking to myself, well, part of part of the isn't part of the issue that, uh, and you know, and this maybe uh, Dave will probably roast me over an open fire if I misquote anything from Kenevin, but isn't part of the issue that a lot you can you can retrospectively analyze something in a, in a complex space, but when you're in the moment. How can you sort of say, well, this is down to our knowledge management investment versus this is our service desk working in with the new procedures versus this is our, uh, you know, new incident management tool. You know, it's all coming together in a very entangled way. And it's it's going to be extraordinarily difficult to unpick that, even retrospectively, to be able to say, this is how we can show that knowledge management works or succeeds. Um John, I'll come to you next from a from a tools perspective. Is is this a a conversation that you see playing out across your your customers who are maybe using multiple modules uh, within a tool set? Well, tools tools are an enabler. I mean, we we, we don't you know we, we we would never pretend that the tool itself generates a, a great culture, a great practice. But on the other hand, the tools can optimize what you do, and they can encourage you know they they, they can certainly. Encourage those practices to to establish themselves better. I think, you know, that that my example of putting knowledge in front of people before they've even asked for it is a good good example. But I think if we're measuring you know successful outcomes, then we can. I've talked about it in the context of the service desk. That is an important outcome. Are we helping the, that team to to actually you know, have the information to hand so that they can fix more stuff more quickly? And I mean, that's quickly in the in each interaction, but also more quickly when they've joined the company. And, and as April pointed out, you know, they get up to speed more often by gaining key bits of information that otherwise they'd have to stop and ask someone. When they stop and ask someone, that's potentially two people's time, but you know, being being occupied by that. But also, you know, a, a really big focus, and maybe it is more at the information management end of knowledge management. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing in this context. We can push more things to the customer. You know, great self-service is is underpinned very often by providing the right information to help people fix things so that they're not coming to the support channel in the first place. You know, every time we successfully Google the right fix for our stubborn washing machine at home, we're delving into information rather than really kind of dynamic knowledge, but it's still saving us a hell of a lot of time. Um, well, I suppose you could you could point to sort of customer forums on these company websites where users are swapping, you know, stories or, or things that have worked for them as an as another way of encouraging that network of knowledge sharing. I mean, and and that that's one source of it, but another source I think is you know it's a very an effective knowledge process should aim to be pushing very very good pieces of information to the end user being supported by the people involved in that knowledge process, because that is a measurable positive outcome. You know, people are happier if they can fix their thing themselves and we engage less time from a support organization that could actually be focused on making sure the, you know, the rest of the technical organization is being more productive in the way it needs to. So, you know, it, it is, it is a really critical thing to measure. I mean, I think the other end of the scale, you know, we, we it, if we kind of look at what 
is being measured as the ultimate out, you know, the value delivered by, by, by agile DevOps type teams. You know, they want to be pushing proactive changes. We want to be creating work that is, that has enduring value. The more those teams are drawn into database, day-to-day support practices and processes, the, the, the less time they have to do that stuff. And, and so if we take, you know, the work of Dr. Nicole Forsgren and, and Gene Kim and a lot of people, you know, Jess Humble, you know, what that's telling us is actually that that has a dramatic impact on our whole organization. You know, the more those teams can deliver, the more we, we hit this very, very strong correlation with organize, with organizational mm-hmm. success as a whole. So there, there is a dark side to that, though, because I, I know I've encountered a lot of uh, developers, leads, even um, agile coaches um who said, well, the Agile, according to the Agile Manifesto, we don't need to do documentation. And, you know, my, my next question is, I mean, they've misread it and they've taken, you know, we have, we, we value the things on the, on the left more than we value things on the right. And they've twisted that to say, well, you know, because you say we value working software over comprehensive documentation, that means we don't have to document what we're doing. And my next question has always been, well, if something does go wrong, because it will invariably go wrong, how is somebody else going to know what you've changed, what you've done in order to be able to fix it? So, yeah, you're never going to get those teams to write everything down. That's for sure. I mean, you, you again, you know, if, if if we're making them write everything down that might might potentially be involved in a support interaction sometime, then again, we're still taking up their time with with you know probably a lot of toil. But but again, this that this is where we see sort of knowledge as a dynamic thing. You know, we, we, it becomes as Dave has, has, has emphasized it. A lot of this comes down to the informal networks or, or the communication channels that we can establish. I mean, you know, you, you what, what is going to happen with these support interactions is those people, no matter what the assignment status of a ticket says, those people are going to end up talking to each other on something like teams or in a room. So, you know, because that's happening, what we want to do is make sure the support organization is creating value for those teams. And one of the things we can do as an industrialized support process in a big enterprise is take work off their hands. And, and so that kind of information sharing and knowledge management, I think, is really key to that. It's probably a less, in, a less tangible measurement of value, but it's, you know, it, it, it's, there's a clear correlation between getting those teams developing and the success of a company. Okay. I think there's, I mean, if you look at what April's talked about, for example, she's talked about good general indicators. Um, And add to that things like measuring network density, because if you have a strong network density across the organization, you know knowledge will flow, right? And we do a lot of work on measuring attitudes because attitudes are lead indicators and it's easier to intervene than compliance, right? And, And that's important. But none of these have a cause and effect relationship with your knowledge program. And there's a general argument, if you have to have to ask, how do we value the KM program, your KM program is already dead. Because if it's providing value, and the, the key question is, if we took this away, would it matter to you? And most people will say no of virtually every KM initiative. Yeah. So it's only if you take it away that you know it's actually valuable. Right. And I, I think that's key. And your other and things like reuse measures, they're quite useful. The trouble is you might not reuse something for 10 years and then it's absolutely vital. Yeah, in terms of the way it works. So the long tail thing that, that John talked about earlier is critical. Um, so I think what you need to do is you need to you need to create indicators and you need to create business and systems architectures which give you flexibility and change. So one of the ways you get around the documentation on software, I mean 
is, is to get your architecture right and your object def definitions right and then have self-documenting code. That's a lot easier, all right, than trying to do entity flow models, which are you know, old-fashioned in, in that sense. Um, I am revealing my the, age the, and my inexperience quite heavily. You are. The, the big, well, I mean, entity <laughs> flow diagrams were designed by the industry, so users would sign off things they didn't understand, but we could hold them accountable for later. That was their entire function, right? Having done that. So I think we, we're not architecting solutions and we're not getting the, the granularity of solutions right. And this is a problem. People do a knowledge management initiative. You shouldn't be doing that. You should be doing an informal network initiative, a narrative initiative, a reuse, you should be doing lots of small initiatives, yeah, um, which you can afford to give up or change. And then you should see if your overall indicator base is improving. You won't have a cause and effect relationship, but nobody will dispute it's making a difference. Yeah? Okay. Uh, there is one last topic I want to touch upon before we uh, before we end this excellent discussion. Um, and Dave, I'll probably come to you with this uh, as the last question. Uh, maybe not the last question, but at least to kick off this last topic. Do you buy into the concept of unlearning? Uh, um, yes and no. I mean, I, I did a lot of work with Bath University on this, all right? And there is a factor that you do get into entrained patterns of thought, all right? And there are ways in which people do things. So you know, the famous experiment on this is radiologists, 83% of radiologists don't see a picture of a gorilla in x-rays when they're looking for anomalies because they're not expecting to see it, right? So, but it's not a matter, I think what we do is we over-focus on individual change and we under-focus process change. Right, so you, you can, and this is my argument continuously with Peter Senge, you can't change the world one person at a time because it's too difficult. But you can change how people interact. So one of the ways that you unlearn is you change interactions. So I'll give you a couple of simple techniques we developed on that. One is transgenerational pairing. We put people who've just joined with the organization with people who are shortly to retire in a sort of coach-apprentice model for three months, and we give them narrative-based software to capture learning. Both of them change in the process. It wouldn't work with a mentoring relationship because it's too close in the power structure. I call it the grandparent syndrome. Grandparents share things with their grandchildren, they won't share with their children. So that transgenerational pairing is an example of breaking patterns. Yeah. Um, crew structures are extremely effective on this, where people are ritualized into role and role expectation. So people radically change how they perceive the world in a crew from how they perceive it within a team. So there are various tools and techniques by which you can disruptive train patterns, but I don't think that's unlearning. It's, it's, it's changing perspective, it's changing context in a way which people can't sustain the old way of thinking. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Barry O'Reilly did publish a, a book called Unlearn, where he offers a lot of examples, stories um, from across history about unlearning. And I th think the, the, the thrust of it is that we have to be ready for context to shift. We have to be ready for uh, the dominant uh, narrative to shift. We, we can't be so beholden to what we've learned in the past and holding that up on a pedestal. But it's a classic American management book. It diagnoses the problem and then just says, we should do it differently. Yeah, virtually every American is brilliant on diagnosis and crap on solution. 
that human beings will not do something differently just because you say they did it wrong in the past. If you've got children, you should know that one. Yeah, you've got to actively change the process so people can't sustain the old way of thinking. Okay, interesting. Uh, April is is sort of the topic of unlearning or shifting ways of working or being open to continuously shifting ways of working. Is this something that you've worked with with uh, your clients? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, that's really what the point of the workshop I facilitated today was about because, you know, their, their particular provisioning process of, uh, you know, a hardware and subscription com combination, so a platform thing, was it had a number of failure points and you know I had to get these people uh, from across the organization in the one room and let's map out what this thing currently looks like right now and point out the um, like they pointed out themselves they can see it for themselves where those failure points are and I as I said to them you know this is no one individual getting steps wrong this is a this is the system needing re-engineering, re-platforming, so that you can get these failure points addressed. So, yeah, I mean, that it's it's what we did today. So, you know, I don't really see it as unlearning. It it's um it's change it's changing the process based on you know the the knowledge that comes forward when we can talk to each other in the room about this one end-to-end -end process. But surely. Over time, knowledge can leave, for lack of a better word, detritus. detritus. Uh, you know, artifacts of how things used to work, which are now still influencing the way things work, even though those constraints have been removed. And again, I'm going to show my age and my inexperience, I suppose, but I remember one of the first jobs I, I had at a university, I was working uh, in, in with a, with a, a client management team in a, in a finance company and the process of uh, uh, of completing the orders that were being sent in by clients was to print off three copies of a particular document that had been sent in but way downstream you would only use two of them and one would go into the trash and I asked well why are we printing three to begin with when we're only going to use two and I kept pulling on that thread because People who know me know I like to poke that bear. I like to, uh, you know, stir things up a bit sometimes. And it turns out that back in the day when that when the company had first set up, they used one of those old, you know, dot matrix printers with the carbon copy paper, and which would produce three copies of the same print. And they would throw away one and use two. And th that sort of thinking then becomes became so deeply embedded, even though we then had... PCs and, and uh, you know, more modern technology, people were still printing three copies only to throw away one because that's how they've been trained. Yeah, but I, I can give you a counter example, all right? So I did field ethnography with Thames Water and we found the water engineers kept the old record cards from the 1940s and 50s. Yeah, and, and refused to work the GIS system because the record card would have something like stopcock is three yards to the left of the rhododendron tree by the front gate post. And therefore, it had high utility. And I still remember going to Yorkshire Water, and after two days with the guys, I said, okay, where are the old water records? And they said, how the hell did you know that? And they pulled them out from under their seats, <laughs> right? So you, you, you need to think about this, all right, in that human beings need artifacts which provide utility to their field work 
not artifacts which are designed by engineers. So there are some residual practices which actually make sense. You don't understand why they make sense until you hit the context in which they were created. So abandoning established practice can actually be quite dangerous. You may not realize it at the time. Okay. Uh, on that note, let's let's uh, wrap things up. Uh, Harry's already signaled that we've gone past the one hour mark. Uh, so again, thank you everyone for a fascinating conversation. I've certainly learned something and I came into it not knowing much about knowledge management at all, in case you haven't figured that out after listening to me for the last one hour. Um, so uh, April, if people want to talk to you more about the work you're doing out in uh, Australia around knowledge management or anything else, where can they find you? Um, so you can find me uh, at KnowledgeBird um, on Twitter and KnowledgeBird.com for website. Excellent. Uh, and John, if people want to talk to you a little bit more about some of the work that you've been doing and or some of the writing that you've been doing, where can they find you? Find me at John Stevens Hall. John is just J-O-N. Um, if you find my Twitter profile, that's got links to Medium and, and things. So that's, that's where I tend to focus most of my kind of thought work on this one. Brilliant. And uh, last but not least, Dave, uh, what's the best way to get hold of you? Um, website is cognitive-edge.com or on Twitter, I'm Snowdead, which is residual knowledge. It's my old, old IBM mainframe ID when we were restricted to eight characters, first seven of your sermon initial. And I've been quite fond of it, so I've kept it in remembrance. So that's how you find me. Brilliant. All right, uh, folks, uh, if you have any questions about this, uh, please do send them in to ask at Um I'll be linking to this on social media so you can respond there as well. Uh, and so until next time, big thank you to all my guests and to our listeners. Uh, please stay safe. Uh, remember to wear a mask and wash your hands. Presented by Axelos.